Good morning, everyone. It is hard to believe it's already Friday and the last day of our school. Yesterday, we spent most of the time on this, another double miracle, if you will, related to leprosy. Of course, the healing of Naaman's leprosy. And we saw what happened with him, the transition in his life as he humbled himself to go to the Jordan as instructed by Elisha to wash seven times and was healed. Of course, we have the analogy between leprosy symbolizing sin and and corruption of the flesh and the baptism, if you will, that uh, occurred with with Naaman. And then his leprosy clung, as it said, as Elisha commanded that the leprosy of Naaman cling to his servant Gehazi as he lied and and attempted to deceive even Elisha. And he did deceive Naaman. And then we moved on to that short miracle concerning the iron that swam, the axe head that fell off and Elisha floats to the surface. And the lessons there being that God does concern himself with, with even the small things. And he may not answer all our prayers if we pray for relatively small things, but he is concerned for us in all ways. And we talked about this borrowed axe and how, indeed, it's been referred to in exhortation that we come to the, into this life with nothing. And in fact, that everything is given to us, or we might say is lent to us by God, and we will be held to account for how we used the tools given to us. So we left Elisha. Whoops, I must be going back. I had this thing turned around and it <laughs> clicking what I thought was the right button, but it was not. Here we go. We left Elisha and Dothan. Fortunately, we did not have him encompassed with the host of Syria when we left him, but that's, that's what we'll find happens very soon. Let's pick up in chapter 6 and verse 8. 2 Kings 6 and 8. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him, and warned him of, and saved himself there not once nor twice. So we assume, in fact, it was at least three times. So what is happening here? Yahweh is revealing to Elisha what the king of Syria was planning miles away in his land. His strategies that he, we learn later, uh, was, was revealed or was spoken of in his bedchamber in private conversation. And so then Elisha, in turn, provides this, as we would call it, intelligence to his king, the king of Israel, and saves and thereby saves the Israelites from being ambushed as we said, on at least three occasions. As we read on in verse 11, Therefore the heart 
of the king of Syria. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said unto them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? So the king of Syria is asking his servants, Who is leaking my plans? Who is defecting and betraying me among my confidants? And his servants ensure him of their loyalty, even though there seemed to be no other logical explanation of what kept happening. We find in verse 12 that one servant comes forward and explains that it was this man, this prophet of Israel, Elisha, that was the culprit. And one of the servants said, None, my lord, none of us, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. The king goes on to tell the servant to go spy out where the prophet could be found. And he reports back, Behold, he is in Dothan. So the king of, of Syria then dispatches what is described as a great host. In verse 14, with horses and chariots and surrounds the city to encompass Elijah so that he might be captured. Picking up in verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Elisha's servant was fearful, was he not? Can you imagine waking up in the morning? You go to bed at night in this peaceful city of Dothan. You wake up in the morning and it's surrounded by the Syrian host with horses and chariots. And so he runs back inside, greatly alarmed, and tells Elisha of what he saw. Alas, my master, what can we possibly do now? What is Elisha's response? Is he upset at this news? Is he fearful? He is aware of a far greater and more powerful host or army that encompasses him and whoever is faithful to Yahweh of Israel. And so he responds to his servant in verse 16, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. The servant, unfortunately, does not have the eye of faith at this particular moment. He cannot see this other army. What are you talking about, Elisha? We can imagine him in un unbelief as his master goes on to pray. Lord, I pray thee, in verse 17, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. His eyes were open to see the angelic host, the greater army of God. What lessons can we take from this miracle, the opening of the eyes of Elisha's servant? 
The main thought I got from this miracle was that it seems that Elisha is constantly aware of the presence of Almighty God. And so he was not at all fearful of the Syrian army that surrounded him. He was able to see with the eye of faith. He was able to see a much greater and a more powerful army. The angelic host that encompasses us as well as it did him. Fear not. Fear not, he tells his servant. This is not, is this not our exhortation as well? Fear not. It was the exhortation to Israel when they entered the land under Joshua, as well as the instructions from Moses to Joshua. What did he say? What did he tell Joshua several times? What did God tell him? Be of good courage. Fear not. We read these things. They are thrilling to read, and we say, yes, we should have this faith. But when we're in situations like this servant was, and we are fearful, it's much more difficult, is it not, to have the same hope and faith and confidence that Joshua had and certainly Elijah had. So if we learn nothing else from this incident, it should be that we should also trust in the abiding presence of the Lord whose angels, as we are told in Hebrews 1, are sent forth to minister for them who are heirs of salvation. And that Yahweh does hear and know everything, everywhere, concerning everyone, and certainly us. If we remain faithful, he certainly knows our circumstances, and especially when we seek him in prayer. And this is what we must do. We must pray as Elisha did for his servant, that our eyes be opened. As we know, Paul expresses these, in, these, this, in these very words, the eyes of understanding, our eyes of understanding, that they might be opened. And also, as David prayed, let's turn to Psalm 3. Psalm 3, and we'll begin in verse 3. We know that David had the eyes of faith and could see this angelic host around him. Psalm 3, verse 3, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine hand. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. I laid, up, I laid me down and slept. I waked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. And perhaps he was thinking of Elisha and Dothan when he wrote this. After opening the eyes of his servant, we next find Elisha doing the opposite to the army of Syria. We 
reading on, going back to 2 Kings 6, in verse 18. And when they came down to him, that is the Syrian army, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. In verse 19, Elisha says unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So they're blinded, and they follow him right into the camp of their enemy, into Samaria. In verse 20, we read, And it came to pass, and when they were come into Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, so he's blinded them, and now he opens their eyes, he reverses the miracle of the blindness. He says, Lord, Yahweh, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And what a shock this must have been. But what is the king's response? What does he want to do? He wants to take advantage of the situation. And here he has now the, his enemy in his own territory. They've just been blinded and they're probably in shock themselves. And so the king of Israel says unto Elisha in verse 21, when he saw them, and he addresses Elisha, my father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And in 22, Elisha answers, thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword? And with thy bow, instead, set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more to the land of Israel. So it seems we, we have an important lesson here, do we not? What is the lesson of this double miracle? The blinding and then the opening of the eyes of the Syrian army. I would submit it is this. That we should not have a vengeful spirit just as the king of Israel wanted to have upon the Syrians. But to what, what basically... Elisha did in this case was to fulfill the words of Proverbs 25. We have on the slide, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. We know that the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans. And what does Christ tell us? He commands us to pray for, to love our enemies and those that persecute us. So this seems to be the lesson, at least to me, concerning this miracle, particularly at the end, instead of taking advantage of the situation, he heaps coals on the heads of his enemy by feeding them and giving them water to drink and sets them on their way back to Syria. 
But unfortunately, and we'll get to this in a moment, and a couple of people have already asked me about it's a little confusion here, it seems, and we'll find particularly in a moment with Gehazi reappearing, that perhaps things aren't quite in order here in 2 Kings. There seems to be an issue with chronology. And especially here, this is another example where at the end of verse 23, we just read, the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. And in verse 24, it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. Now there could be a difference between these raiding bands and the entire host of Syria. That could be the explanation. Or there could be uh, this, this issue of chronology and things being a little out of order here in, in our text. But regardless, we find a famine in the land that's resulted from this siege of the Syrian army around Samaria. Picking up in verse 25, And there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it, until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver, and the fourth part of a cab of doves dung for five pieces of silver. Now this is extreme famine, and we, we talk about inflation today, but this, this is a very serious situation. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And what, as we read on, we find that there was indeed a very se severe consequence, this lack of food that drove them to do things that are quite horrible. In fact, quite horrendous. But they were the very curses that, were, that they were forewarned about if they departed from God's way, as we it was referred to in Leviticus, we'll turn to Deuteronomy 28. We'll find that these things will, were fulfilled exactly. Deuteronomy 28. Verse 15. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And if we go down to verse 56, we find exactly what is being fulfilled here in Samaria as they are besieged by the Syrians. But in verse 56, the tender and delicate woman among you, which would not adventure to set the sole of her foot upon the ground for delicateness and tenderness, her eye shall be evil toward the husband of her bosom and toward her son and toward her daughter and toward her young one that cometh out from between her feet and toward her children, which she shall bear, for she shall eat them for want of all the things secretly in the siege and straightness wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee in thy gates. So here we have, in chapter 
6 of 2 Kings, the fulfillment to the letter of this particular curse. Things really too horrible for us to even think about. But are possible and did happen for forsaking their God, Yahweh of Israel. God's faithful servants, unfortunately, the faithful ones, have to live through such consequences of national disobedience. And we know this happened many times with Israel, with Joshua and Caleb, as they had to suffer for 40 years along with the Israelites for not believing their good report. And now Elisha and his servant are obliged to endure this horrendous time. The king was quite helpless and tries to pass the blame to Elisha and seeks his head as we find going back to 2 Kings 6 in verse 31. The king said, God do so and make and more also to me if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphat shall stand on him this day. So he tries to put the blame for this predicament, this very serious circumstance they're in, upon Elisha. But what, again, is Elisha's response? As we read in verse 32, at least the first part, But Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him. And the king sent a man from before him. So we find Elisha sitting calmly and confidently in his house before the elders. He's fully aware of all the evil intentions of the king, that the king is after his head. And this is a further demonstration of his foreknowledge, the gift of foreknowledge that he possessed. And so he remains calm. He remains calm, knowing that God will protect him, just as he did when he was in the last incident when he was surrounded by the Syrians at Dothan. As we continue with this incident into chapter 7, we find in the first two verses an amazing double prophecy. That is, there are two aspects to this prophecy. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. In other words, we, we read of those very extreme prices for things we couldn't even imagine eating. And now, you know, what we believe is, is mentioned here are normal prices for food. And this is going to happen tomorrow within 24 hours. And then we have the second part of this prophecy. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? In other words, he, ha he doesn't believe this prophecy at all. He, he can't imagine this could happen. And so he says, this, the servant of the king says, Behold, thou shalt see it with my... Or excuse me, this is Elisha speaking. 
Elisha responds, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes. You will witness it, but thou shalt not eat thereof. And in fact, and we won't take the time to go through all these events, but what transpires leads to the fulfillment of this prophecy, probably beyond anyone's imagination, including this servant, but was fulfilled. Strange events. As four lepers instigate, or are really, uh, as we follow the story of these four lepers, we find that they are the agents of change, we might say, that bring about, by, the, by taking a risk, they bring about what transpires in Samaria at this time. Just a few words about these, these lepers. Well, outside the city, as, as they would have, have to be living outside the city, we find this small group of men, these four men with leprosy. So they're ostracized and outcast of society. So if you imagine it's hard to find food inside the city, just imagine what these lepers were going through in their condition. But they had, it seems, an essential role to play in the dramatic events of this fateful day. So we, as an aside, we, we say, or we get from this, that surely God works with all types of people, people of all walks of life. These men were desperate. As we, we won't take the time to read it, but they're willing to take this risk to fall into the hands of the Syrians to get some food. Their options, as they reviewed them and as it's discussed in these verses, were not very good. So they decide to take this risk. As the four lepers walked toward the enemy position in the twilight, there was a strange silence. Why hadn't the Syrian guard come out to challenge their approach? They soon realized there was no one left in the camp. The camp was not only deserted, but it was left in disarray, for they had fled for their lives. They were, as we find described, and let's, let's read, let's go ahead and read verses 5 and 6. And they rose up, that is the lepers, in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise, a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. So they heard this great noise that Yahweh made them hear. It was a very intense noise. They thought that it was this tremendous army comprised of the Hittites and the Egyptians. We can just imagine what was going through the minds of the lepers. They didn't conceive of such a thing themselves, as no one would have imagined such a scenario as they entered the encampment of Syria. So they began to help themselves, as we read on in verse 8, they began to help themselves to the spoil 
the food and drink and carried off the other belongings of the Syrians and hid them. But it was not long, though, until they realized their selfishness and their predicament. They talked among themselves about the punishment they could suffer at the hand of their own people if they waited even until morning and were found out. So they decided to go that very night and tell the king's household of the good tidings as described in verse 9. Then they said one to another, we do not, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings. And we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come, that we may go and tell the king's household. We believe there's a lesson in this. Do we not have good tidings to tell? Do we not have wonderful news? to run back to our camp or to our city and pass on to others. And I would submit, if we take the lesson in what these four lepers realized when they were taking this spoil, if we keep these good tidings to ourselves, perhaps the morning of judgment will overtake us. And so... The exhortation seems to be, just like these lepers, let us not stay here overnight. Let us be up and about and sharing the good news with others. We have been given spiritual treasure, have we not? And we must share it. There are great stores, great stores of spiritual food and drink, it can satisfy many. And we know there are so many out there starving and hungry for God's word. Returning to the narrative, there was one man in Samaria. One man in Samaria that night who would witness all this, as we recall from verse 2. As Elisha told him, you will see these things, but you will not eat. You will not share in the feasting or the rejoicing. So this man is involved in the other half of the prophecy that was fulfilled to the letter. We call him the unbelieving servant. As we mentioned, in verse 2, there was this king servant who was more than skeptical in such a way that the king's attendant would see them come to pass but would not live to enjoy the abundance of food provided. And so 24 hours pass and the prophecy and promise concerning this man upon whom whose arm the king leaned was fulfilled. Beginning in, in verse, going down to verse 16, 2 Kings 7. And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley 
for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. So the first part of Elisha's prophecy is fulfilled to the letter. And as we read on in verse 2, so is the second. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have the charge of the gate. And the people trod on him in the gate and he died. As the man of God had said who spoke when the king came down to him. So the king realizes that this, this mad rush would happen as soon as the lepers came back and said, all this food and, and other goods of the Syrians are out there in their camp. So he makes a wise provision by appointing this captain to be in charge of what we would call crowd control. He was try, supposed to try and maintain order as all these starving citizens rushed out to get the food. And we know the consequence, as we just read. It turned out to be an impossible task to maintain order, to control the masses. And so this servant or captain, the guard, was trampled to death. And so the two-part prophecy, as we said, was fulfilled to the letter. What a difference a day can make. We noted earlier that these prophecies had to come true within 24 hours. Or that's what Elisha foretold. To demonstrate that indeed he was the man of God. Under normal circumstances, we would say there's really little or no chance this could have ever happened. Such a tremendous change occurring so quickly. And that one person, one person out of untold thousands, the predicted fate of him would in fact come true. But we know these are not normal circumstances. The hand of God was at work to accomplish these things. And it came to pass, as we said, exactly as foretold. We think about another sudden change that is coming. It will be just as dramatic. It will happen so quickly. And there is a day appointed. And it's very near. And it will be fulfilled exactly as prophesied. So we go to chapter 8. And we find... In verse 1, Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn, for the Lord hath called for a famine, and shall also come upon the land seven years. And we don't have time to get into this, but this seems to be another potential issue here with the chronology, particularly, in fact, and this is what was pointed out by a sister already, when we look, go down to verse 4, who do we find the king talking with? Gehazi. Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. Now, so most commentators, and we, you know, we don't want to be dogmatic on this, but it doesn't seem quite right that we have, all, all of a sudden we have Gehazi back on the scene, who had left at the end of you know, chapter 4, he had departed from uh, Elisha 
with leprosy. He had been given the leprosy of Naaman. So we, we believe that this particular, or we suggest, we suggest that this account, this encounter with a Shunammite woman, perhaps would be better to, you know, following the chronology to, to be at the end of, of chapter, or actually uh, immediately yeah, after the chap, events of chapter 4, which occur actually before Naaman, and when Gehazi was given the leprosy of Naaman. Cover those points. Long, a long period of silence. As we ended the class yesterday, I mentioned the fact that as we go into chapter 8, we find Elisha mentioned a couple of times and once in chapter 9, and then nothing. There's a long, we might refer to a long period of silence. Elisha is not mentioned by name all from 2 Kings chapter 9 all the way into chapter 13 where we find him at the end of his life. This covers a period of time of over 40 years, essentially the entire reigns of kings Jehu and Jehoahaz. And so we find no more miracles of Elisha during his life. The last one was the, one, the ones we referred to in chapter 6 during the reign of King Joram. But was this a period of inactivity of the man of God? We must believe that he continued in his role as prophet and defender of Yahweh of Israel against all the false prophets and the gods of Baal. The need was still just as great during these 40 years. The idolatry was still there. And he needed to preserve and maintain the faith, the, the faith of the remnant. And surely there was still this faithful remnant in Israel. We can be assured as well that he continued to work with the sons of the prophets as he had throughout his ministry. So we, let's uh, fast forward, if you will, all the way to chapter 13. We have 10 minutes to wrap this up, so we'll have to uh, move right along. I'll have to uh, speak faster than my normal Floridian drawl. My, my wife is saying, don't, no, don't talk any faster. <laughs> so we go to chapter 13, where we find in verse 14, 2 Kings 13 and 14, now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. So Joash, being an evil king, was still perceptive concerning this man of God. Perceptive enough to know that when Elisha died, a lamp would go out in Israel. And so he wept. And he cried out with the same words that we heard at the beginning of Elisha's long ministry. O oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. 
We believe this phrase implies the awareness of the presence of the Almighty and His angelic host that was associated with this man of God. And so when, if Elisha died, which we know he will very soon, the king is concerned that the presence of Yahweh would leave with him. Elisha does not reply directly to the words of the king. Instead, what does he tell him to do? Going down to verse 15, Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. Would seem to be a fairly strange request, would it not? And then Elisha places his hands on the king's hands as he was instructed to draw the bow. And by doing this, it seems that what was meant by this, it was assuring Joash that the strength would be given to him as he shoots the arrow, symbolic of his uh, the war against the Syrians, that the man of God and actually God's strength would be with him at this time. Just as a man would put his hands on a child's and pull a bow too powerful for him to draw, that God would be with the king and Israel's army. And at the command to shoot, the king released the arrow eastward out the window as directed by Elisha. And Elisha pronounces the deliverance from Syria as we read on in verse 16. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance. The arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. He goes on in verse 18 to make another rather strange request, it seems, of King Joash. He tells him to take the arrows and strike the ground with them. We can only imagine the thoughts that went through the king's mind at this moment. Why would he ask him to do this? This would only, if I do this, it will just blunt the arrows, they'll be useless. Shooting the arrow out of the window, he understood, and the symbol of victory made sense to him. But what did the striking on the ground mean? And so he only strikes three times and stops, thinking this is enough. But Elisha, as we read on, was angered that he only did it three times, as we read in verse 19. The prophet exclaims that the king should have struck the arrows on the ground five or six times. The complete victory and total destruction of Syria was dependent not only upon God, but on the degree of zeal with which the king would lead the Israelites against them. If he would, he, if he would have to drive against them very offensively, that is, not just two or three times, but continue attacking as many as five or six times to gain complete victory. And this is exactly what happens at the end of the chapter on the subsequent battles between Israel and Syria. 
that Joash beat the Syrians three times and recovered the cities of Israel. It was with amazing accuracy that the last prophetic words of Elisha are fulfilled. But surely King Joash thought many times later that he should have shown more respect for the word of God through his servant Elisha. So very quickly, what are the lessons of this strange incident with the arrows? Well, I would propose it is a matter of lukewarmness. A lesson that's already been mentioned to us in exhortation. The lack of an active and generous response to his order to strike the arrows against the ground was a sign that the victory would only be a partial one. It showed a half-heartedness that would prove disastrous for King Joash and the Israelites. The lack of zeal. And what is our battle? We know the answer. It is the battle against sin and the flesh. And we ask ourselves then the question, will we gain complete victory? Will we overcome? For we are engaged in an unending struggle with sinful desires which war against the soul. And the reading I had for that was read in exhortation this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Whatever our besetting sins are, and they are different for each of us, the first step is to declare war against the enemy. We can never give in to our sins and our sinful habits. There can never be neutrality, and we can never surrender. Never making peace with our flesh. We must master it, or be mastered by it. And so we submit, and as we said, it's already been mentioned in exhortation this week. It is the message of Christ to the Laodiceans in Revelation 3. So let us take heart that our ministration, as surely Elisha's was, our ministration to Yahweh and in our Master's vineyard be one of zeal and enthusiasm. <clears throat> we know we can't do it alone. And we need to constantly remind ourselves that we need God's help. As we keep trying by ourselves to draw that bow, let us ask for God's hands to be upon our hands to help us and to keep striking a blow against the sin against sin in the flesh again and again and to avail ourselves of his strength through prayer. So now we come to verse 20. 2 Kings 13. And Elisha died and they buried him. that seven seven words after all this and Elisha dies and they bury him a little different is it not compared to the end of Elijah's life or at least the story we have recorded of Elijah and his departure when he was taken up in the whirlwind Elisha dies a very what appears to be a very natural death this terminal sickness that was mentioned in verse 13 
takes, eventually he dies of. But this is not the end of the story. And certainly it's not the end of the story for those who are touched by him. And unfortunately we have very little time to cover this last miracle of Elisha. But we refer to it as life out of death. And it's recorded in verses 20 and 21. We already read the first sentence of verse 21 concerning Elijah's Elisha's death. And then it says, And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass, as they were bearing a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men. And they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. So we have this man who's killed in this battle with the Moabites. This Israelite soldier. But they don't have time for a proper burial. And they throw him quickly into the sepulcher of Elisha. We just read he touches the bones of Elisha and is revived. And so here we have the third resuscitation. Or as we would refer to it or as referred to in the New Testament as resurrection. The third resurrection recorded in the Old Testament. As we said at the when we talked about the, the first resurrection of Elisha, that Elisha was actually involved in two of the three resurrections in the Old Testament. The third one, of course, being Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. So this certainly emphasizes the power of Yahweh and being able to bring one to life again. Elisha, in turn, awaits his resurrection. His resurrection that we pray will soon occur. And surely, Elisha, along with many, the many, as we read in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, the many that sleep in the dust of the earth, who shall awake to everlasting life. The lessons of this last miracle of Elisha. We believe this is a wonderful type, a type that points forward to the greatest of all miracles. And we know that it is the association, or we might say in the context of this miracle, the contact with Christ that brings the hope of resurrection to all those who are asleep in him. But because it, was, it is because he died and then gained victory over death, that is Christ, that others have a chance for eternal life. And so we must die and be buried in the waters of baptism with Christ. So we know to receive life more abundantly as we learn the lesson of Naaman. As with Elisha, we know that death is not the end of the story for those baptized in Christ Jesus. So if you'll give me just a couple more minutes. In conclusion then, we would suggest, and hopefully you'll agree, that the life of Elisha 
is the life of exhortation. It's worthy of our study. And we ask that certainly you go back and look at these things more. There are many more gems. Many more gems to be gleaned from this rich life of faith and works in Yahweh's service. We propose that Elisha was a type of Christ, both in his earthly ministry and in giving us glimpses of the powers of the world to come as he worked all these miracles. And so Elisha remains a fascinating study and, more importantly, an example to each of us. And surely he was a witness to the omnipotence of God in a very dark time in the land of Israel. And surely he must have brought comfort to that faithful remnant, to the 7,000 that bowed not the knee to Baal. And his life has much to teach us in similar days of darkness, of ungodliness. There are no more false prophets of Baal as such, but as we heard this morning in exhortation, the dangers exist out there just as much to our eternal salvation. Perhaps they're greater in our day. His ministry was marked at the outset by surrender to the will of God as he left the peace and security of his home and family. And he did so knowing there would be a cost. He followed his master, Elijah, in total loyalty, even when he was mocked and often questioned for what he was doing. He refused to settle for half measures and claimed a double portion of Elijah's anointing. And from then on, his course was marked by continued fruitfulness right to the end of his life. There's no record. When you think about what Elijah or Elisha never did, he never complained. He never fled from a challenge or all these enemies. He never failed in his courage or lapsed in his obedience. He remained a faithful man of prayer, marked by a deep sensitivity to the prompting of the Spirit and an equally deep compassion for his fellow man. For by far, the majority of his miracles involved healings and restoration. Yahweh's love and grace always shone through this man. Elisha exemplified the promise of Proverbs 4 and 18, that the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining brighter till the full light of day. And so we have traveled with Elisha this week, starting in the fields of the farm where he grew up, the meadow of dancing, through the hills and valleys of Israel, and beyond to Syria, to Edom. He was in the company of kings, in the company of simple, everyday people like ourselves, always witnessing, always being an advocate of Yahweh and working those miracles. And hopefully, we pray that our eyes will, as we go forth from this place, that we will be able to see with the eye of faith that they be with us are more. They be with us are more than that they that be with them.
And shortly Elisha will stand again. He will stand again in the land to receive from the one that he foreshadowed the prize of eternal life. Meanwhile, he sleeps. And of, of him who served so faithfully, like Abel, it can be said, he being dead, yet speaketh. Thank you.